0: All right, hey, you guys are amazing. Some of you like did fourteen like so fast. That was so cool. All right, we well, hope you met someone and perhaps you welcomed someone that's kind of new and made them feel uh, seen and known. So it's great to have everyone together today. Good to see you. And uh, man, these last couple weeks, I know you've been blessed. I'm so thankful for. Uh, Tim and Brian and their faithfulness to God's Word and, and uh, feeding us and leading us. So uh, it was a good break for us. But I'm glad to see all of you. And as Gabe had said, if you're a guest, whether in the room or online, we really are glad that you are checking things out. We want to welcome you. But um, I want to say a big thank you to our great worship team, the musicians, technicians. You guys did a great job today. And They just faithfully, week in and week out, are bringing us to Jesus and lifting up Lifting up the name of Christ, that's what it's all about. And so I'm so grateful for the team that, uh, that we're working with. I want you to know this morning, I don't know if you've ever thought much about your story. Um, you matter to God. You'll hear us say that. God knows you. God loves you. But you matter to God. Like your story right now, the, the life you live that maybe the people around you are like maybe clueless about, the life you live right now matters to God. And the life you live right now not just matters to him, but he, he's instrumental. Like, he's there. He's active. How many of you feel God's presence with you in your life right now? Anybody? He's not, like, waiting over here on Sundays, uh, hoping you'll show up and, you know, tag in with him. He's with us all the time. If you don't yet know Christ, I want you to know that's one of the beautiful things about a relationship with God is that Christ is with us, Christ in us. His grace is sufficient. He's always with us. Check this out. You have not been one place this week that God wasn't with you. Now, a couple of you got scared right there, but the truth is that might be okay too. God's always with us. He's guiding us and His, he's a part of our story. And it's important that we tell that story. It's important that the people around you, especially your kids and grandkids and those near you are aware of God's activity in your life. What that does is it causes us to look for it. It causes us to pay attention. We're going to be in a Old Testament book now for a few weeks. This is history. This is a history section of Scripture. We started uh, in the late fall. We did several weeks in the the book of Ezra. We learned quite a bit about this this individual named Ezra, who, by the way, wasn't a prophet. He's not in the prophet section. He's in the history section. Right next to Ezra is the book of Nehemiah. And that's where we're going to spend some time. Nehemiah, as a history book, is telling the story. I believe it was written by Ezra, more than likely, telling Ezra's story. I'm sorry, Nehemiah's story. But that story has impact for us because as we hear about the faithfulness of God to his people, uh, to the mission of God, but even to the individuals like Nehemiah, his family, uh, the nation that he was leading and, and instrumental with, we, we didn't realize that God is, in fact, a part of our story. And we have a, we have a story to tell. We can, we can pass on this history. I hope you're sharing your stories. Uh, if you're on the younger side of, of whatever that means, ask questions of those older than you. Ask them questions. If you're on the older side of whatever that means, and we're not making any lines here, just so you know. We're, I'm done with that. But if you're like on the upper side, then tell your story. You know, grab the great grandkids or, or grab people and, and share coffee. Initiate it. Don't wait for someone to say, hey, please tell me. Just initiate, hey, can I buy you coffee? And go have coffee and talk about life and tell stories. And how many of you know your parents' first job? Oh. How many of you know your uh, grandparents' first car? They didn't have cars back. Yeah, they did, okay? We're not that old here. Stop that. All right, telling the story, hearing the stories. When we read a history book in the Old Testament, we're hearing a story of God's activity. I want you to begin to see God's activity in your life today. And maybe it's not about how you bought your first car or what that first job was like, but that's good practice in telling the story of what God is doing. Uh, I don't know how often we align... Uh, what's happening in our life, in our world, with God's activity. See, sometimes we look around and say, we see the absence of God. Man, if God would only, or if this would be fixed. And we kind of operate from a position of, man, where's God? As opposed to, God's faithful. He's on the throne. Uh, If you know Christ, he's with you. So whatever's going on worldwide, locally, in your home, at job, at school, at school, God's right there with you. Let's begin to align with the fact that God is active in the details of our story even today. At Grace, whenever I start a new series and a book, I like to draw us to a couple key passages. Some of you know those passages, I hope, by heart. We are a word-driven church, and when I say word-driven, what that means, like many good Bible churches, we teach God's word. That's all that means. This is what guides us. I'm not guided by the political calendar or what's going on in the world. Those are all important factors to be a part of, but we're guided by where God leads us. So, couple key passages. You guys remember Romans 15.4? Romans 15.4, read it out loud with me. Here we go. For whatever was written, in former. Was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Everything that was written. So when Paul is writing that in Romans, he's probably thinking of there was a guy named Nehemiah and Ezra who had a story in getting Israel back to the land. That's an important story. Everything that was written is for our good. So there's no section of Scripture. Honestly, there's some, script, there's some places that are hard. I get that. Uh, but they're all for our good. And so we like to use that verse to let it remind us that this matters. The other verse is 2 Timothy 3.16. Read it with me. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So it's all for us. God gave us his word so we can know him, so we can walk with him, and we can be a part of what he's doing, that story that he's playing out in our lives. Several months ago, I got away for what I call these study breaks, where I get away for a few days and pray and plan and kind of prepare both sermon messages as well as some overall leadership of our church, and I went through the books of the Bible thinking of what's been taught and what hasn't, and to my surprise, I hadn't touched Ezra and Nehemiah, and I kind of felt bad about that for a second, but then I thought, well, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your timing that now this matters, and now it's important, and I want to address it in such a way that clearly relates to our life. Our life as a congregation, our lives as individuals. Um, clearly, our church is, is preparing for a transition to go from this facility that we've enjoyed for 27 years And we've got a a property that's being uh, developed. And if you guys haven't seen, the the building's starting to go up. So we're really excited about upcoming changes. And so when you think of Ezra and Nehemiah... What's happened historically is the nation of Israel has been in exile. In other words, uh, Babylon came in and took over, took most of them away as prisoners, and they lived and were raised there for 70 years. Uh, the Assyrians took the northern part. Uh, the Babylonians took the southern part. Uh, Persia is now the world order, and under Persia's guidance, permission was granted for them to begin to come back. And so you might recall in our study in Ezra, there are three waves of the people coming back. And as they come back, they're going to rebuild. And so it's not uncommon for churches, when they're thinking about change, to think about what are the lessons we learn about rebuilding and coming together and seeing something new take place, those three those three phases, remember Zerubbabel came first. That was that cool name that I enjoy seeing a lot, uh, Zerubbabel. Uh, he came first. He brought a small group of people. Um, and they, remember the first thing they built? Before the temple? Am I hearing it? You're all muffling through your, your mask. That's what's going on here, yeah. Hold the mask down and say, Altar. There you go, thank you. Yeah, so they built the altar first. That's the very first thing they did. And it's like you have this worship in the very opening chapters of Ezra. It's like the first thing they do when they come back. On the place where the altar will be and the temple that's been destroyed in a city that's been destroyed, they started with the altar. Ezra shows up later, and Ezra brings another wave of people. They uh, rebuilt the temple. Now you see the temple being rebuilt, and, and you see this, this, this activity of God's works playing out. Um, I'm looking for my notes to make sure I get the dates right before I say them. By the way, there's notes online if that's helpful to you, um, and they have the dates there. And uh, yeah, yeah. So the temple was completed um, in 515. So, so Zerubbabel started, the, started with the uh, Zerubbabel started with the altar. Then he is the one that brought the the temple together. Ezra, I'm sorry, when he showed up in 458. Uh, now, what he's doing is he's, re- he's bringing the worship back to it. He's given teaching, he's bringing guidance. And then now you have uh, the wall will be rebuilt by Nehemiah. Uh, So Nehemiah is the third wave, the final wave of the regathering. So I had that wrong a moment ago. Ezra was a part of bringing the word of God back and bringing instruction. Uh, So Zerubbabel builds the altar and then the temple. And now Ezra comes, and we finished our series with that prior to the holidays. Nehemiah, is this is a huge part. Because Nehemiah is still back in in Persia. He's still working in the government. He is a cup bearer. And while he's there, he hears about the fact that the city has not been rebuilt. The walls have not been rebuilt around the city. And so he's quite concerned about that. If you're in Nehemiah, join me in chapter 1. Uh, Nehemiah 1, uh, verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the sons of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. So he was the, 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 on, in the government. His brother came with others and asked about how the Jews were doing, uh, uh, Nehemiah learned that they were still without walls in verse number three. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province had had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. So people back home where we haven't gone yet, our homeland, there's people there and they're in great trouble and great shame they bring out. Uh, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates Are destroyed by fire. If you remember in Ezra chapter four, uh, when they were starting to rebuild things, uh, they were stopped and they got discouraged and they never came back to that. Um, And so now uh, we learned about some of the other prophets, Haggai, even Malachi, the prophets address this time and the heart of the people and their discouragement and the lack of going forward. Nehemiah hears this. So the context is super important. And it's important before, as we study a context of a story like this to realize that you too have a context. We have a context. We live in a time that, you know, they'll be talking about this time for a long time, right? Uh, we live in a unique time. Uh, just as our parents and grandparents, there is uniqueness about their context. In the time we live, God is active. God has not forsaken us. But that doesn't mean there's not some trouble on the horizon doesn't mean there's some things that don't look good and aren't setting well. So please know, context isn't just a, a history lesson uh, particle. This is part of our life as well. So in this context, we see that Nehemiah has heard about back, back in Israel, back in Judah. He's not been there yet. Uh, the walls have never been uh, rebuilt. Ezra has been there for like 13 years at this time. And so look at verse number 4. That Nehemiah's posture, this is a real critical part of our of our lesson today. We're just going to go through chapter one and a few verses in two, hopefully. But this posture he says, Soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, don't don't go over that too quickly. He's going to quickly go on to a prayer, but but stop there for a second. He, for days, there was a season of time he was overwhelmed. Uh, Emotionally, it hit him. My my homeland is not protected. The walls in in this era of time, walls today is a tough language to discuss, but walls then are what protected the city. The walls gave the city their identity. It's who we are. God has blessed us. He's given us this. So you had walls to protect you, uh, both militarily, but also as a part of you, who you are as a people and as a nation specifically of, of the people of God. So the wall mattered. And he's realizing, wait a second, they've, they've rebuilt the, the temple and the altar and the people are gathering. But please understand this. And I want to make a kind of an overarching statement here about the people. Just because the captivity, people are coming back, doesn't mean they're coming back to peace. It's not like, wow, it got weird. We, got, we left for 70 years. And by the way, 70 years is a lifetime. These people weren't living 900 years like Methuselah and those guys. There's people that are coming back that were never, have never been to Israel. There are people, including Ezra, who I think probably was born during that time. He's not coming back as a 110-year-old guy So when Ezra came back, and now even Nehemiah, we're going back to a place we've not been, but that's ours. God's blessed us with that. When they go back, it's rough. The political situation, they're still under the hand of the Persian uh, world power. So please understand, that they're not coming back, and hey, it's good to be back, and it's all good, let's build our temple, and everybody just love each other, and let's do life. It's still hard. There's still challenges. I think one of the mistakes the church makes is mistaking life now as a follower of Jesus Christ as heaven. Aren't you glad this isn't heaven, everybody? I mean, it's good. And if you live in Flagstaff, we're pretty close. Uh, It's pretty good here. But it's not heaven. It's not going to be all right. It's not going to be perfect. There's going to be constant challenges. They were still living under a hard iron fist. However, they were free to go back home and begin to live out some of their beliefs. So it matters But please understand the posture that got him was, wait a second, so our city isn't even complete yet? He mourned. I think this does three things. It reflects humility. I think our posture. Are we arrogant as followers of Jesus? Are we arrogant as Americans? Are we arrogant because of the job or our last name? Do we bring a certain overconfidence? Or is there humility that says, God, I know you're working I know you're doing some good stuff, but God, it kind of hurts right now. Or God, I'm kind of of burdened by something. There's humility. I think it reflects conviction. I think there's a conviction he had about what needs to happen where he just thought, he didn't just hear the news and right away say, well, that's too bad. That's someone else's problem. How easy would it have been for Nehemiah to say, well, that's just unfortunate. A, I don't live there. B, I've never been there. I'm not sure I'm going. That must be someone else's problem. But instead, in humility, he realized God's people with a promised land and promised identity were vulnerable. So he had a conviction about this. He had humility. He had conviction. But we're also, we're going to see it reflects leadership. Reflects leadership. Do you have those three things? Reflects humility, conviction, and leadership. What do we weep over? What is it that really gets you? And it's okay that, you know, I appreciate what Brian said last week in his message. It's different for different people, right? You get a cause, you get, you're passionate about something. There's some people that might think, wow, it's too bad about the, the walls, but I'm really burdened for my this thing over here. What gets you? What is that thing that when you hear about your grief and, your, and you feel the weight of it, Please know that it's good to have that. It's okay to know, Lord, I'm in touch with with you. And when I hear that about whatever it may be, any number of good causes, but it it, it weighs heavily on me. What's our response? Not arrogance and, and, man, everyone's all wrong. I should go in there with a big whip and get everything in shape. But instead, there's a humility that starts with prayer and fasting and brokenness before God. So in verse 5, we jump into Nehemiah's prayer. In Nehemiah's prayer, we're going to break this down in some principles for our prayers, okay? Uh, Verse number 5. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. What a great way to start. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you, day and night for the people of your servants, I'm sorry, for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. So it's not just them. He brings himself into it, which we have sinned. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So please understand the, the, the exile's kind of over. Yeah, there's still a world government that's over them, but they're, they're home. They're coming home. Many have already come home. Many people, by the way, will never come home. Many people will stay in Babylon. They'll stay in different places and they never made the trip home. But as a people of God, he's saying, Dear God, please hear our prayers because we're not doing good. I've said it before, I'll say it again, it's okay to admit, we're not doing good. Whether it's our sin and we're, we're dealing with it, or whether we're just saying, I am a hot mess right now, life is kind of like the walls are doing this, and I'm struggling. Absolutely, please, yes, it's good to come before the Lord with that. But you don't, don't, don't ever feel like, well, I'm a Christian, so I shouldn't have that. I should be like victorious, and I should walk in, and church is always awesome, and I should always be walking on cloud nine. No, we're a mess. It's hard. And some of you are facing things right now that the people throws rows in front of you, you have no idea. It's hard. And it's okay. We come before God, and we say, God, would you please hear my prayer? couple things about prayer I want to point out in this amazing prayer, and it'll go through the end of the chapter. The first thing I notice, is, it's, it's the principle of praying the Lord's Prayer. You're like, the Lord's Prayer? Jesus wasn't even there yet. You remember what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer? We begin by acknowledging God. When you pray, when we come to God, we start with Him. Don't start with you. Don't start with, well, God, here's what I need, and here's what's wrong. He wants to hear from you. Start by acknowledging him. That's who God is. Uh, He says that in the very first verse, uh, uh, verse five. Oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome who keeps covenant. God, God, you, I'm coming before you. The Lord's prayer opens when Jesus teaches them. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, I start with you. Your name is holy. And don't look at God as a simple little answer over here that you can tap into once in a while. We worship God when we start by acknowledging him. We see a principle here of praying the Lord's Prayer. We also see praying without ceasing. Uh, he prayed for days. Um, in verse 4, when, he, when he, his posture, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and prayed. In verse 6, he says, I now pray before you day and night. So Nehemiah didn't hear this horrible situation and come before God and say, God, man, we got this deal, and I'm bummed about it. If you can fix it, if you can step in, if you can help, that'd be great. I need to get back to work, but thanks. He didn't do that, did he? There are times when we go through seasons um, that require unhindered devotion and attention in the matter of Prayer. To pray without ceasing, as Paul instructs us in First Thessalonians 5.17, you, you, you clearly understand. That doesn't mean you walk around with your hands folded and your eyes closed, walking into things while well, I'm praying. No, that's that's odd. Don't do that. What it means is I'm in a position to always pray. And I'm always mindful. And I'm prayerful. Honestly, gang, I'm prayerful with some of you. We have conversations in the hallway. and I'm praying right now. God, please help me not. Or please guide me. We pray as we go in meetings. We pray as we as we're doing life. But this right here is a season when it's like, I'm just going to stop everything. I I need to stop everything. I need to clear my calendar. I need to not try to do 14 things. And right now, God, I'm just begging you. I'm coming before you, praying without ceasing. There are seasons. And some of you have experienced that. It's good. It's good. Give yourself permission to to spend a little more time in the car. Do another couple of laps because you're still praying. That's okay. They'll They'll be waiting for you when you get home. Continue praying. There are seasons when we need unhindered devotion and attention in the matter of prayer. Also, we see prayer as an advocate. We see that he he joined his people. He prayed on their behalf. We pray as advocates. We come and we pray for someone else. We bring someone else's matter. We feel their pain. We feel the struggle, and we, 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 we take it. God, I'm coming on behalf of. Church, can I encourage you? One of the biggest blessings you can have in this building and with each other is to pray for one another, like regularly. Be mindful of people near you. Be mindful of people in your small group, of the people that, that you do life around, and, and just be praying for them. Bring before the Lord uh, their burdens. He says in verse 6, For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of all the people, He comes before God on their behalf. We stand with others when we kneel for them. And we need that as much as we ever have. Standing with others as we kneel with them. Ezra did that in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted to the heavens, praying on behalf of others. Notice, too, that Nehemiah owns the sin. He's not just saying, well, they're a mess, Lord. You know, good luck with that. Could you do something? He's like, God, we're broken. We're humbled before you. Can I take just a moment and pause and say, what about this issue of sin in the believer's life? See, we often think of sin as out there. We think of sin as that really messed up person who's made nothing but horrible decisions. Paul, in Romans 7, says, man, I'm dealing with it. Paul in Romans 7 says, yeah, if hot mess was in the Bible, it'd be in Romans 7. I'm a mess, God. I keep thinking and doing and saying those things I don't want to and shouldn't. And Lord, what I really want to do, I'm not quite getting there. Paul, the apostle, says that. Sin in the life of a believer is real. Don't think that when sin enters your home, your marriage, your family, your sphere, that, oh, no, sin is real. We need to understand it and be loving and be biblical and be passionate about walking with the Lord. But as followers of Christ, those of you that know God, please don't look at someone who's struggling and say, Well, I'm not even sure they're saved, actually. Don't ever do that. Don't judge. People are struggling, sin is real. I'm looking at a bunch of people who, guess what? I see flesh. (laughs) This is flesh right here. This isn't just a spirit that's ready to go to heaven. We have the flesh, Paul talks about. We live in this, so there's temptation. There's weaknesses. We're not in our glorified body with the Lord forever. That's coming, praise God. But right now, there's flesh, and we're struggling. We make bad choices, and things happen, and we may not respond well. Own the sin. How's that for a little lesson on sin in the believer's life? We got it. It's real. I guarantee everyone on your row this morning probably already sinned. Go ahead and look. Go ahead and look and see who's turning red. I'm just teasing. We struggle. It's like real. We're selfish. Don't raise your hand. We're prideful. Uh, We say things. We think thoughts. We judge people. You see what I'm saying? Uh, Nehemiah owns the sin. God, we've sinned before you. Confession, regular confession is healthy. Regularly come before God and say, and I'm not saying live in misery. Be, don't, be, don't be that guy that like every day, oh, I'm a wretched man that I am. I'm a jerk. I'm a, I should be a worm. You should just squish me right now, God. Don't pray that every day because I don't want to be around you. But when you're feeling like, wow, Lord, this has been rough. God, I did say that thing yesterday. I probably shouldn't have said that. Confess your sin. Own it. Make it right with each other, of course. Um, So, prayer is an advocate. I kind of slipped in confession right there. Uh, praying on the promises. I love this. Look at verse number seven. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. So, so, so Nehemiah knows why there was a captivity. He knows why we all got shipped to Babylon for 70 years. He understands that. And now that they're coming back, he still has that sense of this isn't going well, God. And we know that. Uh, we've ignored your rules. Uh, verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Isn't this cool? Nehemiah is telling God, remember how you said you would punish us, right? You know when your kid comes to you and says, and they, they kind of start with that line? Um, guess where it's going? Verse number uh, 9, but... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. That may not make a lot of sense at first. What that means, he's saying, God, you promise that when we turn to you, you'd regather us. He's praying on the promise of what he knew God had already said. And this is like the Mosaic Covenant, right? The law, you do bad, there's going to be punishment. You do good, there's reward. That's an Old Testament theology that looks really different in the New Testament, but there's some principles. And so the judgment was, we sinned against you, the people are taken captive. They were under discipline. Now we're coming back. And he says, God, remember when you said that you would gather us? Praying on promises. Praying based on what God has made clear. We, too, can approach God based on his word, on his promises. Um, one example is the promise of peace. Brian talked about this last week. Not a life of ease and perfection and everything's ordered, but a life of peace with God. Do you realize no matter the mess, no matter the hardship, no matter the blech, you can have peace with God? That's a promise of God. You may feel horrible. But I know I've got peace with God. And so I know that peace with him is going to get me through peace in perhaps a circumstance. By the way, that's probably the most important truth. I don't want to skip over that. Peace with God. We don't have peace with man because we're good people. We don't have peace with each other because we're above average. We have peace with God first, and that's what drives and motivates and encourages and informs the rest of our life. As Brian brought, again, I keep referencing last week's message on peace. Do you have peace with God, by the way? Do you know you have peace with God? There was a time in your life when you said, yes, God, I know who you are and what you did for me. I believe what you say is true about me. I come to that cross, and I realize what you did on the cross, you did with my name on your mind, on your heart. That's peace with God. Lord, you did that for me. So I receive that. I step into this. I receive that as a, as a new life, a new identity. And now I find myself with you, Christ within me. To have peace with God isn't how well we're doing in life. Do we have less problems, more problems? That's not peace with God. Peace with God is knowing he loves you. He died on the cross. Jesus took your place. You've received that. And now you live in a messy world with peace of him. Please know that you can have that. I don't assume all of you in this room do or those watching online. This is a statement, an act of faith to step forward and say, I want that peace with God. God, I come to you on your terms, not mine. I bring my mess. I bring my confusion. I bring my questions. And I come before you and receive the gift you've given to me. That's how we have peace with God. So that's one of the promises. (laughs) There's a lot of promises on which we pray upon. There's promises to guide us. The promise of the Holy Spirit. When you pray, the Holy Spirit's with you. Uh, when, when, when it says in the New Testament, uh, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world, that's a promise you pray upon. So think about the promises that we can say, God, you said in your word, and that's how we, that guides our prayers. Um, I like what Spurgeon said. Nothing pleases our Lord better than to see his promises put in circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, do as you said. We glorify God when we plead his promises. Don't ignore what the gift that God's given you. Claim it. God, you said. And God, your word promised. We have a hope in heaven. That's a promise you pray upon. God, this mess I'm living in, I know it's going somewhere. I'm looking forward to that day. You start with that. You pray upon that. Next, praying by faith. In verse 10, we pray by faith. He said, They they are your servants and your people. So he's acknowledging a truth. These people, they're yours, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's about to go before the king. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. He prayed in faith when he said, God, these are your people. This is your mission. Nehemiah was not saying, you know, I got this weird idea, God. Stay with me. All right, there's people who don't have a wall. I'm thinking I could maybe be helpful. I have some resources. Uh, let's do this. He said, God, these are your people. This mission is bigger than me. This cause is greater than anything I'm a part of. This is yours. We pray by faith when we say, God, yes. Yes, you can. Yes, you will. When he says pray for success, it's not a monetary successful. Uh, he's saying, God, guide these next conversations. We need to pray by faith. Pray in such a way that says, God, I believe you're doing this thing in my family's life right now, this job that we're looking at. God, I'm trusting you. Don't look at God like he's angry and mean and has a big bat and just wants to pounce you. Say, God has blessings. He's got promises. God, I'm trusting you for what you have. Pray. Pray with faith. So it's cool. you You see the prayer answered. Uh, In chapter 2, it says in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine, because he's a cupbearer, and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, cupbearer. This was not just like some menial servant. He was like number two, number three in the, in the entire uh, nation. He was important to the king. He's the one that literally took the cup before the king drank the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He was that close to him. The king had that much confidence in him. And so now he's going before the king, tastes the wine, and the king says, dude, what's up? Why the sad face? He says he was fearful. You don't, you're not sad in the king's presence. If the king doesn't like your countenance, Off with the head. This wasn't like light, lightweight stuff. So He says, "Oh man, I'm I'm fearful now because the king noticed." But then he said, "Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire?" Then the king said to me, "What are you requesting?" So I prayed to the God of heaven. Did you catch that right there? The king says, "Man, what do you need?" I prayed to the God of heaven. He didn't like stop. Say, "I'll be right back." I'm gonna go to my closet. I think this is what I just mentioned a minute ago. King says, what can I do for you? And he's like, okay, God, how do I say this? God, what do I say? I've been spending some time with you, weeping and fasting, and now's my chance. So what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He put it out there. That's the request. So the prayer back here, the mourning, the weeping, it all culminated. It like, I got an opportunity. I'm in front of the king, and he just asked me. And so he said it. Look at verse number six. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Quickly, let me just point this out. Prayer matters. Prayer works. We pray with faith. We pray on promises. We pray because we trust God. Look what happened. The prayer was answered. The prayer was answered. It's like, wow, God, God you're doing something. God's showed up. He's engaged in this, in this process. And so because the prayer was answered, we now have some lessons we can learn. Because the king is saying, go. And we're going to see in the rest of our story as we go through this, how this happens. And it's not easy. By the way, there's internal conflict right away. Horrible conflict right away, internally and then, of course, externally. Lessons from Nehemiah's prayer. Number one, look for God's hand in your context. Your life today, like 2022, can you believe that? Look for God's activity in your life today with all the stuff you're dealing with. Be aware that God is active. He's doing something. Uh, I think we look through the, the lens of the biblical nature, we narrative. We look at, at the scripture and say, what is God doing right now? We know he's done with the Old Testament. We know he's coming again. So what's God doing right now? Look for God's hand. Um, be sensitive to God's desired activity for others. Think about other people. Think about others, not just yourself, but what is God doing with your kids? What is God doing in that family, in the people at work? Bazillions of people are overwhelmed and struggled with a lot of issues. Go to God on their behalf. Be mindful of what God's doing for them. Seek humility in your posture. When you you find yourself being prideful and arrogant, check check your heart. Just back it up a little bit and say, God, forgive me for that. Let's be humble before the Lord as we engage with others. Stay diligent in prayer. Stay diligent in prayer. Back to Spurgeon. He said, never let the promises of God rust. Think not that God will be troubled by your, uh, by your reminding him of his, of his promises. He loves to hear the outcries of his people. It's his delight to bestow favor. He is more ready to hear than you are to ask. The sun is not weary of shining nor the fountain of flowing. It is God's nature to keep his promises. Therefore, go at once to the throne and ask God for blessing. Stay diligent in prayer. And then lastly, when God answers, get up and go. And this is what we're going to see in the rest of the book. God answered his prayer. What troubles you? What's on your heart? What's that prayer list? What's that thing that that you're weeping about now? Bring it before the Lord. And when he answers, we get up and go. Let me pray for us. God, we're grateful for your word, and we're thankful that the lessons we learn, even in in an old historical book, we see a, a man who's going to step into leadership. We're going to see you uh, come around him and, and just just pave the way. Financially, you're going to resource this trip, uh, the, the building, the people that will be involved. There'll be some internal conflict and there'll be some challenges. But God, we're going to see how you use this one individual who said, God, my heart is broken for this. Lord, there are people in this room, there are people watching right now that have a heavy heart for something. And, Lord, perhaps you're drawing them to that for them to, to come before you and to plead for your mercy and to ask for help and, and to listen to what you would say. So, God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thankfully that you love us and that you make prayer what it is, that we get to come before you. You're not, you're not burdened with, with time. You're not taxed by our time. Honestly, God, even as I stand in this moment, I'm aware of the clock. I'm aware that people are ready to go. We're going to do another song, and we're going, to, we're going to make our way out, and that's kind of what we do, and that's good, God. But, but Lord, when we come before you, there's no clock that needs to run. Lord, you as a father await for us to jump before you and just sit on your lap and talk as long as we can and hear from you and bring these promises and talk about the faith struggle. Talk about the mess. Talk about our love and our hurts. Lord, may we, your people, from this, first chapter, just lean into that prayer and say, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Help us see the, the neighbor as you see the neighbor. Help us be aware of our culture, of our context, of our season, of our, of our climate in this, in this weird time that you've put us. God, this is where you've put us. So God, may we be mindful of what you want to do and, and, and we ask and we beg that we can be active participants in what you want to accomplish. So bless your people, God. Thank you so much for your word and the privilege it is to study it together. We ask this in Jesus' name.